And if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can turn for the reading of God's Word in Psalm 119 to verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 105, we'll read through verse 112. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord. And teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever unto the end. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon our meditation on his word this evening. Father, how excellent are your gifts. Even as the psalmist declares, you give life. You give light. You guide. You keep. You provide. But above all, you have given us yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all of these blessings pass to us as your children, your people, the recipients of such boundless and bewildering favor. So we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to use your word as only you can. For without the ministry of the Spirit, it falls upon deaf ears and dead hearts. And even we as your people, to our great discredit, attend only with difficulty to the invisible things, to the things above, to the heavenly matters, to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so we ask that you would direct our hearts and our minds aright, that we might taste of these blessings, even now, and tasting of them rightly, uh, declare our great thanksgiving yielding our lives in worship unto you. We ask that you would do these things for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John. Continuing through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we come to question 31. First, we'll read a selection from John's Gospel, John chapter... 6, verses 35 through 40. And then we'll turn our attention to the catechism. Lend your attention. This is God's very word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31, asks, What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. Amen. One of the more difficult experiences that I've had as a father is uh, when I call my children and they ignore me. If you're a parent, perhaps you can relate to this, or perhaps you have better children than I do. Calling my children, uh, Maisie, uh, Michael, uh, come here. Nothing. It's as if the house were empty. I know the house is not empty. They cannot drive. They cannot go anywhere. I know they heard me. We do not have a big house. (laughs) Maisie, Michael, come here. Nothing. So I go and I see and I find out why there was no response. One of them was playing a game. One of them was crying because they were excluded because they couldn't play the game. (laughs) It was their own world that they were involved in, keeping them from the summons. Mm -hmm. Calling my children should elicit the response of, obedience, but our sinful hearts on display in our children and hearts we know too well is, are occupied uh, with whatever it is that we are occupied with, keeping us from the call of the Father. What's most astonishing, though, perhaps, is not that uh, the authority of the Father is um, despised in the instance of ignoring the call, uh, but the fact that I'm usually calling them to something pleasant. It's time for dinner. <laughs> We're having something very nice for dinner. It's actually something you want to have. For, it's something that's going to benefit you greatly. In fact, it's going to keep you alive. <laughs> and yet, it continues to fall on deaf ears. You see in that little vignette, sort of the double tragedy of the fact that the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth, and it is stamped with the authority of the maker of heaven and earth. It is the Father who calls. (laughs) The Father calls. But it's not just that the authority of the Maker of heaven and earth from the Father and the Son by the Spirit is despised when the call is ignored. But what all are being summoned to in the Gospel is the blessing of eternal life. The choicest gifts that God can bestow. Indeed, God Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a humbling starting point. We're talking about effectual calling tonight. But you can hear it here that it assumes that the call is broader, wider, comes to more than just those who come. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby 
he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And that's where you start with call. We make a distinction between an external call and an internal call, a general call, an effectual call. But if we gloss over the fact that Jesus Christ is freely offered in the gospel, we miss something of the wonder of our God and something of the heinousness of the fallen heart. Something of the darkness and the death which gripped us all prior to the moment of life which the sun calls to spring forth. You heard it in the passage that we read. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Sometimes as Calvinists, we think he's crossing his fingers or something. (laughs) As if he's not really saying, no, whoever comes to me. I'm looking at every single face. Whoever comes to Jesus Christ will have eternal life. Whether you call it the well-meant offer of the gospel or whether you call it the free offer of the gospel, the sincere offer of the gospel, the staggering fact is is that in the gospel, the party who has been wronged says, come home, all is forgiven. Come home, all is forgiven in the beloved Son. All the preparations have been made. The table is set. The feast is ready. Come, come Come, you need nothing to come. Come, come, come and live. That is meant sincerely and truly. And it is a call issued by God. We cannot lose that. For His excellencies and His beauty are in display in that. John Murray writes, The overtures of grace in the gospel addressed to all men without distinction are very real. And we must maintain that doctrine with all its implications for God's grace on the one hand and for man's responsibility and privilege on the other. Louis Burkhoff, this call is coming from God is seriously meant. He calls sinners in good faith, earnestly desires that they accept the invitation and in all sincerity promises eternal life to those who repent and believe. That's John Murray and Louis Burkhoff. I don't know if you have heard those names before. (laughs) This is Reformed theology. (laughs) This is what we declare to be true, the free offer of the gospel and the earnest appeal, which is now being made by service. That's what Paul says, right? We are making our appeal as God's ambassadors to be reconciled unto God as we declare the Lord Jesus Christ in whom the Father is pleased to reconcile sinners unto himself or pleased to reconcile himself unto sinners. However you look at it, it is an astonishing invitation and it is well meant. We've been having these pizza nights. This is such a pitiful example. (laughs) We've been having these pizza nights where we invite the whole church over to our house and we enjoy just a few modest pizzas together to close out an evening. The invitation is to all the church. No one in the church can say, I can't come in the sense of I wasn't invited. If you press into that, 
question and answer, why can't you come? You'll find out that there's a distaste for pizza, which is insane. Or a distaste for the ciphers, which I get, but also I take some offense at. (laughs) Whatever it is, it's not because the doors aren't open. It's not because the pizza is withheld. There is an earnest invitation, and the only thing in the final analysis that is keeping you from it is your volitional recalcitrance. That was a big mouthful just to mean (laughs) you don't want to come in the final analysis. In Reformed theology, we make a distinction between the moral inability of man and the natural inability of man. Man is morally incapable of responding to the call. He is not naturally incapable of responding to the call. It's an important distinction. For therein shines forth the excellencies of our God who continues to earnestly call, earnestly invite, and it continues to cast a great pallor of shame upon sinful hearts which would refuse the free gift of life, the free provision of everything necessary for eternal life. But the wonder is that some do come. That's what the question really sets forth. The call does bring. God effectually calls. He calls indiscriminately. He calls generally. He calls externally. But to His own, He calls effectually. To His own, the call actually carries and brings unto Him. You hear that in Christ's Word. All that the Father gives me will come. All that the Father gives me will come. Question 31 doesn't unpack it, but if you read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, you'll find out that the reason any of us are effectually called, the hidden foundation of our call in time, which actually brings us, is because the Father has set His love upon us in eternity past, purely for His good favor. That's what He says, right? All that the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John there is saying something very similar to the Apostle Paul in the famous passage in Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where he writes, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is called? And when the New Testament uses the word called, it usually means effectually called. There are only a few instances where it has the general call in view. Usually it means you're effectually called, meaning you're brought, meaning the gospel came and the Spirit opened your understanding, opened your heart and brought you unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about there in Romans 8. You can think about Peter's, blessed is the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This blessing of the call that comes to us in time is rooted in what, according to the Apostle Paul? And those whom he predestined, those foreknown of the Father, those for reasons that are not plain to us, but which we delight to him because it means God's glory, for reasons known only to him out of his mere good pleasure, not for anything foreseen in us, he placed his love upon us. In the infinite wisdom of God, he decided that there would be vessels of mercy, though all deserved to be vessels of wrath. 
to his name be glory. That's the foundation. That's why the gospel came to you in time and brought light to your heart, brought life to your heart. The blessing of our calling is built upon the foundation of the blessing of our election in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some beautiful implications from that, isn't there? This call is irreversible. (laughs) This call is indissoluble. It's permanent in its reorientation unto life. That's what you hear in this golden chain, as the ancient divines called it. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. To the one effectually called, there is the gift of justification. To the one he justifies, there is the gift of glorification. This is a certain trajectory that is rooted in the decree of God, the foreknowledge of God, the infinite and eternal mystery of our triune God who delights to make known His glory, not just in creation, but supremely in redemption. (laughs) A redemption which would never come to pass if it hinged upon us, even for a moment in its final execution. There's a lovely strand of comfort in this. John Flavel says, As one follows the stream to reach the fountain, so one can trace their calling to the wonder of electing love. This beautiful thread that can be traced back to the Father's good pleasure, brought to pass in the fullness of time in the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit when the gospel reached for us. There's great comfort in that, and there's great encouragement. Encouragement to press on. Encouragement to continue to look to the one who brought us out of darkness and established us in his marvelous light and calls us to press on in faith and to look into the author and finisher of that faith. We also see that the effectual call does some specific things That's what's highlighted here in question 31. It talks about convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. It goes on to talk about persuading and enabling. Question 31 is kind of like a... um, um, You should make up your illustrations beforehand so that you don't find yourself in a position like this. You get multiple blessings in one question. If you were to read any standard Reformed treatment on the Ordo Salutis, for instance, Murray's excellent treatment in Redemption Accomplished and Applied, where he uh, sketches out for us the specific features of the Ordo Salutis, you'll find a distinction drawn between effectual calling, regeneration, and faith and repentance. You get all of those elements here. Westminster Shorter Catechism, to my knowledge, doesn't use regeneration, but regeneration is what effectual calling affects. If effectual calling looks at the reality from God's perspective or from God's side, the Spirit working with the gospel to bring a sinner unto themselves, regeneration looks at what takes place in the person, what work is wrought 
in us. And so effectual calling affects regeneration. John Murray writes, God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it the operative grace whereby the person called is enabled to answer the call and to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. We see this in any number of places. You could think of Titus 3 or John 3, but there's a really lovely angle on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul brings the picture of creation and the wonder of that call, let there be light, and uses it to orient us to the mystery of redemption brought home to a sinful heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a stunning parallel that's drawn there between creation and regeneration. Isn't it? The choicest gifts. Life. Light. An act of God on par with the mystery of Genesis 1. An act of God on par with the mystery of Genesis 1 is what took place in your heart to bring you to true and saving faith. That's magnificent. (laughs) You consider the cosmos, consider that moment, consider the darkness and the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. The tohu vavohu, which just is fun to say in Hebrew, the welter and waste if we use King James Version. Empty and void if we use ESV. Tohu vavohu, and then vayahi or, yehi or, which is also fun to say in the Hebrew, which just means let there be light, and there was light. Boom! Magnificent. Sinner, come to me and live. Boom! Magnificent. And if you have the ears to hear, the second act was greater than the first. For he spoke life into a heart that was hostile, opposed, at enmity. And he imparted life, causing you to believe when you had no earthly inclination to do so. To mourn your sin when you just previously been delighting in it. And to declare Jesus Christ is Lord when you were fully content to insist that you were Lord and doing just fine. Thank you very much. Let there be light in the light of the glory of God on display in the face of Jesus Christ shown forth in your heart and mine to the praise of his glorious grace. Convincing enlightening, renewing. Which raises an interesting question or a helpful question, however you want to put it. How do I know I'm called? How do I know that I've been effectually called? You can point to two very plain indicators that you have been effectually called, which means you have been made a partaker of this grace. Do you see your sin? Do you see your sin? Can you remember a time when you didn't see it? (laughs) 
or if you saw it, you saw it only in the terms of it being an inconvenience to you because it got you in trouble, or it caused your reputation to fall in the esteem of men? Do you see it now for what it is, an offense against your Maker? Do you see it now for what it is, heinous in and of itself, and not just because of the consequences it brings about? Do you see your sin? If so, you're a partaker of grace because the flesh does not see its sin left to itself. And the second question is, do you see your Savior? Do you see the one who says that I'm a friend of sinners? Do you see the one who says, I came to seek and save the lost? Do you see the one that says, come to me, all who are weary? Do you see your sin? Do you see your Savior? If you see your sin and you see your Savior, You've been called. (laughs) Congratulations. You're a participant in grace. You haven't done that on your own. No heart comes to that position left to itself and rejoice. For God's purposes in you will not fail. We can mark here the passivity of the sinner. Doesn't that everywhere extend itself from this metaphor? Creation. Creation didn't create itself. We could include the new birth in John 3. None of us brought about our own birth. (laughs) We were utterly dependent upon God's eternal decree. Utterly dependent upon the circumstances which brought us forth as individuals. If a birth structures a new birth, if creation structures new creation, then we are forced to conclude that we were acted upon. That we were passive that we were made the recipients of God's grace. And this is His glory. John Murray again. If it were not the case that in regeneration we are passive, the objects of an action of which God alone is the agent, then there would be no gospel at all. For unless God, by sovereign operative grace, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. But we do, which means he did. (laughs) And that's how we can close our meditation this evening. We talked about effectual calling. We talked about what effectual calling affects. And then we talk about acting in accord with that new nature. Embracing Jesus as the initial and primary act of this new principle of life. I've been in three delivery rooms in my day, and I am convinced that you do not need to convince a newborn baby to cry or to nurse as a general rule. You may need to slap the bottom of that baby. You may need to encourage it at the breast, but there's no class that you enroll that newborn in to teach them how to cry and how to suckle. It comes with that capacity. And that's really good because I had no idea what to do with my firstborn. (laughs) The new life that appears in the delivery room knows how to act in accord with the principle of life that it has been given. Faith and repentance are the cry and the suckling of the new birth. They're the actions which are in accord with the new principle which has been introduced. And for this, we can look at John chapter 3, that famous discourse 
with Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then once more in 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can notice just a couple of quick things. The birth and the seeing and entering are distinct. Doesn't he say that? You have to be born and then you see. You have to be born and then you enter. There has to be this new principle of life which is imparted and then you act in accord with that principle. Further, you can say that the seeing and the entering, which are the obedience to the call of Christ, the believing response, they are subsequent to the new birth. You do not believe in order to be regenerated. You believe because you have been regenerated. You enter the kingdom. You respond to the call because you've been born from above. Faith follows regeneration. It's right there. We can also mark a further implication. The implication here is that the entering and the seeing are the natural extension of the impartation of new life. They are the crying and the suckling. We can shift chapters in John for a second. When Jesus called to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth, there was a moment when there was life in a tomb. That's utterly inappropriate. (laughs) So what does the life in a tomb do? It moves towards light and life because it itself is life. It's the same thing there with the new birth and the exercise of faith and repentance. We can also mark that the believing response is impossible. It's impossible without the new birth. That's what he says. You can't see the kingdom without being born from above. You can't enter the kingdom. It's impossible unless you've been born from above. We can also highlight last that while this is a legitimate acting of the new life which is imparted to us, not even this is autonomous. Not even that is independent of God's upholding and sustaining grace. The newborn cries and suckles, and this in accord with the principle of life that it now embodies. But it needs oxygen and milk. There's no such thing as crying without oxygen. There's no such thing as suckling without milk. In the same way, the cry and the suckle of repentance and faith is sustained by the Spirit and finds its object in the Lord Jesus Christ as the fount of mercy waiting for sinners. The new nature of the child cannot exist in the ambiotic fluid. Its lungs cannot be in the womb anymore. The moment of birth marks a new mode of existence, a new set of necessities, air and food from the mother. So it is for us. The Christian cannot live without the milk of God's word. For it is what has caused us to be born again. The gospel in particular, but the whole counsel of God as we read in Psalm 119, it is our light. It is our lamp. And so it is for you, dear Christian, if you have been born again, that food which is given unto you to sustain the eternal life which is dawned in you is God's holy word the ministry of the Word, the visible Word in the Supper 
and baptisms. These feed faith. These sustain faith. These build faith as they orient us to the author and finisher of our faith. I'll make one final exhortation. Don't live in the tomb. Life lives in the light. We're called to walk in a manner which is in accord with our calling. We're called to walk by the Spirit, for we've been wrought by the Spirit. We've been called to feed upon the Word of God because we're no longer going to be satisfied devouring the lies of this world, the lies of the devil, the lies of our faith, our flesh. We walk in accord with the principle of life which has been imparted unto us, which in part takes place in the congregation of life where we exhort one another all the more day by day, especially as the day draws near, to fix our eyes upon the one who is pleased to begin a good work in us and which we are confident he will see through to the day of his return. Let's pray. Father, how rich and how manifold are your blessings. How good is your gift unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only sending him forth, not only atoning for sin, but ensuring that the gospel would come to each and every one upon whom you set your love. We pray, Father, that this call would continue to go forth and that more and more would be brought to see the excellencies of who you are, the excellencies of the Son, to taste that you are good. We ask, Father, that you would feed us on this taste of your goodness day by day, week in and week out, to strengthen that life which you have begun in us, which one day will be all in all, as we yearn for the consummation of all things. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.